Orange Curtain, a look at 80s music from Orange County, California. Music that came from here and music that came to here. Join me, your host, Doug Crandall, every Thursday night at 9 o'clock p.m. Pacific Standard Time. to another episode of Behind the Orange Curtain. Behind the Orange Curtain explores music that came from Orange County, California to influence the rest of the world, and music that made it to Orange County, California from around the world to influence those of us who lived here in the 1980s. Tonight's episode, we'll look at college rock radio from the 80s. College rock was the alternative rock music played on student-run university and college campus radio stations located in the United States and Canada in the 1980s. The station's playlists were often created by students who avoided the mainstream rock played on commercial radio stations. The bands of this category combined the experimentation of post-punk and new wave with a more melodic pop style and an underground sensibility. It is not necessarily a genre term, but some common aesthetics among college rock bands do exist. Artists as diverse as R.E.M., U2, The Cure, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Camper Van Beethoven, The Smiths, XTC, The Smithereens, The Replacements, 10,000 Maniacs, The Pixies, became some of the better known examples by the close of the 1980s. By 1988, some college rock artists had begun to gain mainstream recognition with several having singles reach the top 40 portion of the Billboard Hot 100. The CMJ New Music Report, a publication that reported on the scene, created a chart which measured popularity of artists played on college radio. The journal's charts were used by Rolling Stone magazine and other media. In September of 1988, Billboard introduced the Modern Rock Tracks chart which monitored airplay on modern rock and college radio stations. Several college rock artists were highly successful on the chart during its first few years of existence. By the 1990s, the term college rock for this style of music was largely replaced with the terms alternative and indie rock. Many 1980s college radio music directors went on to have successful careers in the mainstream American music industry. The phrase left of the dial comes from the 1985 replacement song that we just heard from their brilliant album, Tim. It was the first time a band was paying homage to the college radio stations who were playing their music, and where on the FM bandwidth one could find most college stations, on the left side of the dial, to which you would turn the dial to the range between 88 to 93 kilowatts to hear these stations. 
Now with digital signals, we use preset buttons to lock on a radio station signal. That is, if you listen to terrestrial radio at all anymore. Before those preset buttons, you had a dial to help you lock in on the station signal, thus the reason for the song's title. Now let's get on with the first band of the evening. Guitarist Joey Santiago and songwriter Black Francis, born Charles Michael Kittredge Thompson IV, met when they lived next to each other in a suite while attending the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Although Santiago was worried about distractions, he noticed Francis played music and the pair began to jam together. Francis embarked on a student exchange trip to Puerto Rico to study Spanish. After six months, he returned to Amherst and dropped out of the university. Francis and Santiago spent 1984 working in the Boston area warehouse, with Francis composing songs on his acoustic guitar and writing lyrics on a subway train. The pair formed a band in January of 1986. Two weeks later, Francis placed an advertisement seeking a bass player who liked both the folk act Peter, Paul, and Mary and the alternative rock band Husker Du. Kim Deal was the only respondent and arrived at an audition without a bass. She had never played one before. She was invited to join as she liked the songs Francis showed her. She obtained a bass and the trio started rehearsing in Deal's apartment. After recruiting Deal, Kim paid for her sister Kelly Deal to fly to Boston and audition as the drummer. Though Francis approved, Kelly was not confident in her drumming and was more interested in playing songs written by Kim. She later joined Kim's band, The Breeders. Kim's husband suggested that they hire David Lovering, who Kim had met at her wedding reception. The group arrived at a name after Santiago selected the word Pixies, randomly from the dictionary. Liking how it looked and its definition as mischievous little elves, the Pixies moved rehearsals to Lovering's parents' garage in mid-1986 and began to play shows at bars in the Boston area. Now, without further ado, here's David Bowie's take on the Pixies. The first time I, I heard the Pixies would have been around 1988. I found it just about the most compelling music outside of Sonic Youth in the entire 80s, I think. In America, they just didn't ignite people the way that they ignited them in Europe. There was such a lot of sludge in America at the time. I think uh, Pixies had a real hard time uh, pushing their way through to the surface. Three elements, I think, made them important as a sound band. One was their pure dynamics, the very obvious now, but not obvious at the time, dynamic of keeping the verse uh, extremely quiet and then getting it erupting into a blaze of noise for the choruses. That was one element. The second element was the interesting juxtapositions that Charles brought together uh, of quite sordid material at times, I suppose. Charles's lyrics actually dealt with common or garden kinds of subjects, but the way he, the, the permutations that he created within the different subjects that he dealt with uh, were so unusual that it, it caught my ear immediately. It was the sense of imagination, and I use imagination not lightly, uh, not in terms of it being a fantasy, which most people um, define imagination as, but being able to understand the affinities of something and have those affinities illuminate the subject. It's done so effortlessly and it's done with such a sense of fun and enthusiasm. There's a great 
sense of humor underlying everything that Charles does. Three were the, um, the colors that um, Santiago provided as a guitarist. I think uh, as a guitar player, he's terribly underrated. It's much more about uh, texture. He, he, he supplies extraordinary texture. One of the strongest songs that I heard at, at the time was Debaser. Space of religion, two very basic American subjects. <laughs> uh, the, the two subjects closest to the American heart, I think. The pure strength of him on stage, this, this kind of mass of screaming flesh, was <laughs> kind of very imposing figure. I always thought there was a psychotic Beatles in there, you know? There's a, there's a, there's a great reverence for earlier rock music with Charles. One of them was uh, UMass, I like UMass. What they've done, uh, uh, is is uh, change the format for delivering harder rock. Uh, I don't think that format really existed before they, they came along.
Next band up, Husker Du. The members of Husker Du first performed together when Grant Hart, Bob Mould, Greg Norton, and keyboardist Charlie Pine began playing in 1979 in a band called Buddy and the Returnables. At the time, Mould was a freshman at McAllister College and frequented Cheapo Records, a St. Paul record store where Hart was a sales clerk. Hart and Norton had originally met while applying for the same job, which Norton eventually got. Hart and Mould bonded over a shared love of the Ramones, and soon after that, they enlisted Norton and Pine to form a band. They began gigging, playing mostly cover songs, some classic rock, and frequent Ramones tunes. Unbeknownst to Pine, the remaining band members disliked the sound of the band with Pine's keyboards and began practicing without him. Writing a few originals, the new name originated during a rehearsal of the Talking Heads' Psycho Killer. Unable to recall the French portion sung in the original, they instead started shouting any foreign language words they could remember, including the title of the popular 1970s memory board game, Husker Du. The phrase without diacritics means, do you remember, in Danish and Norwegian. The name stuck, and they added heavy metal umlauts to it. Mold said that they liked the somewhat mysterious qualities of the name, and it set them apart from the other hardcore punk groups with names like Social Red Youth Dynasty Brigade Distortion. Mold also said that while Husker Du enjoyed much hardcore punk in general, they never thought of themselves as exclusively a hardcore group, and that their name was an attempt to avoid being pigeonholed as such. Hart, Mold, and Norton fired Pine during their first official performance on March 30, 1979, and continued as a trio under the new name. Mold has written that he considers the band's first real gig to have been May 17, 1980, at the renowned punk club Jay's Longhorn Bar. By 1980, the band was performing regularly in Minneapolis, and their music evolved in a fast, ferocious, primal sound, making them one of the original hardcore punk bands of the Midwest. Though heavy touring, they soon caught the attention of punk trailblazers, including Black Flag and the Dead Kennedys, Jello Biafra, who helped introduce Husker Du to new fans. Black Flag guitarist, songwriter Greg Jinn later signed the band to his label, SST Records. Here is Makes No Sense At All by Husker Du.
The Pogues formed in London in 1982 and hit it big after opening for The Clash in 1984. They were soon signed to Stiff Records, and the label released their first album in October of 1984. They were originally called Pogue Mahone, an Irish slang phrase that means kiss me arse. The band changed their name after getting a record deal with Stiff Records in the early 80s. Joe Strummer from The Clash became the lead singer of The Pogues when frontman Shane McGowan was fired from the band in 1991. McGowan was let go after missing several dates on the Pogues tour and was unwilling to help the band promote their latest album, Hell's Ditch. Spider Stacy took over lead vocals when Strummer left in 1993. Elvis Costello helped the Pogues record their second album, Rum Sodomy and The Lash, in 1985. The disc title comes from a quote commonly attributed to the former British Prime Minister, Sir Winston Churchill. The Pogues became very unstable in 1987, when their label Stiff Records went bankrupt. The band held together long enough to record a new album, which spawned the Christmas hit Fairy Tale of New York in 1988. But here for you now is Yeah, 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 The Pogues. Good evening, and tonight we start our show with The Pogues!
This band formed in June of 1978 in San Francisco, California, when East Bay Ray, Raymond Pepperell, advertised for bandmates in the newspaper The Recycler. After seeing a ska punk show, the original band lineup consisted of Jello Biafra, Eric Reed, Butcher, on vocals, East Bay Ray on guitar, Klaus Floride, or Jeffrey Lyall, on bass, 6025, Carlos Cadona, on rhythm guitar, and Ted, Bruce Schlesinger, on drums. This lineup recorded their first demos, and their first live show was on July 19th in 1978 in San Francisco. They were the opening act on a bill that included DV8 and Negative Trend with The Offs headlining. In early 1980, they recorded and released the single Holiday in Cambodia. In June, the band recorded their debut album, Fresh Fruit for Rotting Vegetables, released in September of that year on the UK label Cherry Red. The album reached number 33 on the UK albums chart. Since its initial release, it has been re-released by several other labels, including IRS, Alternative Tentacles, and Cleopatra. The newest reissue, the special 25th anniversary edition, features the original artwork and a bonus 55-minute DVD documenting the making of the album, as well as the band's early years. Holiday in Cambodia takes aim at privileged American college kids who don't know how good they have it. A secondary target is the U.S. government, which was doing nothing to stop the genocide in Cambodia, where Pol Pot was in power. In the song, lead singer Jello Biafra addresses a kid who has some college under his belt, and he thinks he's woke. He figures what this kid really needs is a holiday in Cambodia, where he can find out what it's like to be persecuted and enslaved. When playing this song live, Biafra would act like a dumb American kid who suddenly ends up in Cambodia and gets shot. He had stage training, which he put to use in the Dead Kennedys. This is one of the few Dead Kennedy songs that was written by the entire band. Most were composed solely by Biafra. And in 2013 interview, he said it was still his favorite song and explained how it came together. The original Holiday in Cambodia is more a straight punk song. We called them Chainsaws back then. Chainsaw Punk. After the Ramones song, Chainsaw. The other guys didn't like it. They didn't want to play it. I was heartbroken. I was crestfallen. They'd never done that to me before. And then Klaus began noodling around on what became the signature bass line. I thought, hey, wait a minute. That's cool. What would happen if we swiped everything from my Holiday in Cambodia song, Verse, Chorus, Bridge, but used that as the original root rhythm? Actually, we had a three-chord chorus and bridge that came from the original, and then the verse we swapped out. Eventually, Ray, guitarist, or East Bay Ray, came up with that signature guitar part when he enters the song. It was taking a while. We didn't even play it at our first show, although we knew we had it under our belt. It was a pretty chief song for making me decide I ought to stick with these guys. It might turn into something really unusual because I was playing around with some other people at the time too. Here's that song for you now, Holiday in Cambodia by the Dead Kennedys.
is a single from Elvis Costello's 1989 album, Spike, co-written by Costello with Sir Paul McCartney. The song Veronica was co-produced by T-Bone Burnett and Kevin Killen and features Paul McCartney on his iconic Hofner bass. In 2004, Entertainment Weekly voted it one of Costello's top 10 greatest tunes. The song focuses on an older woman who has experienced severe memory loss Costello's inspiration for the song was his grandmother, who suffered from Alzheimer's. When talking about the song on a VH1 interview, Costello reminisced about his grandmother having terrifying moments of lucidity, and how this was the inspiration for Veronica. In his 2015 autobiography, Unfaithful Music and Disappearing Ink, 
Costello wrote of his collaboration with McCartney, I'd brought an early version of Veronica that you would have recognized. All the words I had already written about my paternal grandmother, Molly, and more formally, Mabel Josephine Jackson. In fact, her Catholic confirmation name, Veronica, provided the very title of the song. Veronica was also Costello's highest charting top 40 hit in the United States, peaking at number 19 on the Billboard Hot 100s chart. Number one on its Hot Modern Rock Tracks chart, and number 10 on its mainstream rock tracks chart. Costello says it's hard to believe, but McCartney was getting a lot of bad press around this time, as he was still feuding with his former Beatles associates and refused to attend the Beatles' 1988 induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Costello said in a 1989 interview, I know some people have very bad preconceptions about Paul McCartney but I'm involved to the extent that I've written a bunch of songs with him. I know he's a really good bass player, so I'm not too bothered about what anybody thinks about him playing on my record. I don't think it reflects at all my perception of myself as a songwriter. Here's Veronica by Elvis Costello.
The House Martins were an English indie pop group formed in Hull who were active in the 1980s and charted three top 10 albums and six top 20 singles in the UK. Many of their lyrics were a mixture of socialist politics and Christianity, reflecting the beliefs of the band. The back cover of their debut album, London Zero Hole Four, contained the message, Take Jesus, Take Marx, Take Hope. The group's a cappella cover version of Caravan of Love was a UK number one single in December of 1986. After breaking up in 1988, Paul Heaton and Dave Hemingway formed The Beautiful South, while bassist Norman Cook became an electronic dance music DJ and music producer, founding the group Beats International, Pizza Man, and Freak Power, before rebranding himself as Fatboy Slim. In 1986, having recorded two John Peel sessions, the band broke through with their third single, Happy Hour which reached number three in the UK singles chart. The single's success was helped by a claymation animated pop promo of a type that was in vogue at the time, featuring a cameo by television comedian Phil Jupitus, who toured with the band under his stage name of Porky the Poet. Debut album London Zero Hole Four was released later in 1986 and contained their previous two singles as well as an alternative version of Flag Day and follow up to Happy Hour, Think for a Minute. Here is that original single, Happy Hour. What a good place to be Don't believe it What a good place to be Don't believe I
The Stone Roses were an English rock band formed in Manchester in 1983, one of the pioneering groups of the Madchester movement of the late 1980s and the early 1990s. The band's classic and most prominent lineup consisted of vocalist Ian Brown, guitarist John Squire, bassist Manny, and drummer Rennie. The band released their debut album, The Stone Roses, in 1989. The album was a breakthrough success for the band and received critical acclaim, many regarding it as one of the greatest British albums ever recorded. At this time, the group decided to capitalize on their successes by signing to a major label. Their record label at the time, Silvertone, would not let them out of their contract, which led to a long legal battle that culminated with the band signing with Geffen Records in 1991. Stone Rose's lead singer, Ian Brown, has claimed that the song that we're about to play is about sin and how individuals want to be idolized and how we would do anything to attain that goal. This song is featured in the movie Welcome to Sarajevo. The Stone Roses were one of the first so-called Manchester shoegazing bands that were expected to be one of the biggest bands of the 90s. Internal strife, drug use, and ego problems wrecked those chances and they split in 96. In a 2009 interview with Clash Magazine, Brown explained that he didn't actually want people to adore me. I was trying to say, if you want to be adored, it's like a sin, like lust or gluttony or something like that. Here is I Want to Be Adored by the Stone Roses.
This next band is an American rock band from Los Angeles, formed in 1985. The band's initial farewell tour in 1991 launched the first Lollapalooza, which has since become a perennial alternative rock festival. Jane's Addiction, formed from the remains of frontman Perry Farrell's previous band in mid-1985, Farrell was searching for a bassist to replace Kelly Wheeler in his faltering band. He was introduced to Erica Avery by Carla Bulich, and the pair bonded over a mutual appreciation of Joy Division and the Velvet Underground. They began to practice together, although Avery never became a full-fledged member of Farrell's disintegrating group. The new band was dubbed Jane's Addiction, in honor of Farrell's housemate, Jane Bainter, who was their muse and inspiration. My girlfriend, Casey Nicoli, and I were sitting in the car, Farrell recalled, and we started to think about band names. She threw in Jane's heroin experience. I thought it wasn't vague enough. If you want to invite people in, you don't want to put heroin on your door. In a Blender Magazine interview in December of 2006, Farrell says, around 1984, I rented a big house on Wilton near Hancock Park, right in the heart of everything good in Hollywood. But the whole neighborhood seemed deteriorated. I deceived the landlord into thinking I was a gay interior decorator rather than a punk rocker, and one of my housemates was Jane, this strangely beautiful, well-to-do girl who got caught up in the drug scene and fell in love with a dealer named Sergio. Jane was an intellectual and knew how to act aristocratic, even with a needle and a spoon on the table. I'm not sure the song mythologized the neighborhood, St. Andrew's Place is nothing special to look at, but I do think it glamorized her life in a way. That was a great time, though, when the landlord found out I wasn't gay and I wasn't an interior decorator, he came after me with a gun. By the way, Jane finally conquered her addiction in later years. In its formative incarnation, Jane's addiction went through four guitarists and featured Matt Chaikin, formerly of Community FK, on drums. After Chaikin failed to show up for rehearsals, Farrell sought a new drummer. Avery's younger sister, Rebecca, suggested her boyfriend, Stephen Perkins. Avery was uncertain because of their different tastes in music, but eventually relented. After Perkins was hired... The drummer and Rebecca promised to get their friend Dave Navarro into the group. Based on Perkins' recommendation, the band auditioned and hired Navarro. Jane's addiction became a sensation on the Los Angeles club scene, primarily headlining at Scream, and won interest from a variety of record labels. While the group decided to sign with Warner Brother Records, they insisted on releasing their debut on independent record label Triple X Records first. The band's manager negotiated the largest advance up to that point with Warner Brothers, signing the band for between $250,000 to $300,000. In January of 1987, the band recorded its debut, Jane's Addiction, during a performance at the Roxy Theater at a cost of $4,000. Before the album's release, Jane's Addiction supported British band Love and Rockets on a two-month tour in late 1987. In late 1987, the band opened for the former Bauhaus vocalist Peter Murphy at the now-demolished Fender's Ballroom in Long Beach. Here for you now is Jane's Addiction and Jane Says. Jane Says 
Suzanne Vega was born in Santa Monica, California, but grew up in Spanish Harlem and the Upper West Side of New York City. She was raised by her mother, a computer systems analyst, and her stepfather, the Puerto Rican writer, Egardo Vega Yunque. Let's hope I said that right. Suzanne Vega attended New York City's High School of Performing Arts, where she studied modern dance and graduated in 1977. Vega later attended Barnard College, where she majored in English literature. She wrote Tom's Diner whilst eating breakfast at Tom's Restaurant in New York City. Tom's Restaurant was also used as the model for Jerry Seinfeld's hangout in his sitcom Seinfeld. She auditioned also for the lead role in Desperately Seeking Susan, but lost out to Madonna. In 1989, Suzanne Vega became the first ever woman to headline at UK Glastonbury Festival. But after receiving death threats from a girl infatuated with her bass player, Vega performed in a bulletproof vest. When German computer programmer Karl Heinz Brandenburg was developing the technology that would become known as the MP3, he found that Suzanne Vega's voice was perfect, the perfect template for which to test the purity of the audio compression that he was aiming to perfect. As a result, the MP3 format's voice compression was specifically calibrated to sound good when playing Tom's Diner. Because of this, Vega has been referred to as the mother of MP3. On a 1987 Swedish television special, Vega said a few years ago, I used to see this group of children playing in front of my building, and there was one of them whose name was Luca, who seemed a little bit distinctive from the other children. I always remembered his name, and I always remembered his face. I didn't know much about him. He just seemed to be set apart from these other children that I would see playing. And his character is what I based the song Luca on. In the song, the boy Luca is an abused child. In real life, I don't think he was. I think he was just different. When talking about creating the character of Luca for her song, she says, I wasn't sure what the character would say. I knew what the character's problem was, but I didn't know how to get the listener to get involved. I wanted it to be from the point of view of a person who is abused. Now the problem that the person has, they can't say it. So how do you get the problem out if you can't say it? How do you involve the listener? Well, you introduce yourself. My name is Luca and I live on the second floor. I live upstairs from you and so therefore you're engaging the listener. I think you've seen me before, so you start to listen. You're drawing the listener into this world with very simple, basic information, and then proceeds to state the problem without ever saying what the problem is. That was my problem as a songwriter. How do I give this information without ever giving it? Here's Luca by Suzanne Vega.
Van Beethoven is an American rock band formed in Redlands, California in 1983 and later located in Santa Cruz and San Francisco. Their style mixes elements of pop, ska, punk, rock, folk, alternative country, and world music. The band initially polarized audiences with the hardcore punk scene of California Inland Empire before finding wider acceptance and eventually an international audience. Their strong iconoclasm and emphasis on do-it-yourself values proved influential to the burgeoning indie rock movement. The band's first three independent records were released within an 18-month period. Their debut single was Take the Skinheads Bowling. The group signed to Virgin Records in 1987, releasing two albums and enjoyed chart success with their 1989 cover of Status Quo's Pictures of Matchstick Men a number one hit on Billboard magazine's modern rock tracks. Take the Skinheads Bowling is the signature song of the band, written by David Lowry and released in their 1985 album Telephone Free Landslide Victory. The song, as covered by the band Teenage Fan Club, was notably featured in the Michael Moore documentary Bowling for Columbine and received substantial airplay on K-Rock and BBC Radio 2. Lowry admits to being surprised by the success of Taking the Skinheads Bowling, stating on his blog, I never thought that Take the Skinheads Bowling would become a hit. If somebody had traveled from the future and told me that we would have a hit on our first album, I would not have picked this song as being the hit, not in a million years. I would have more likely picked Where the Hell is Bill. Why? We regarded Take the Skinheads Bowling as just a weird, nonsensical song. The lyrics were purposefully structured so that it would be devoid of any meaning. Each subsequent line would undermine any sort of meaning established by the last line. It was the early 80s and all our peers were writing songs that were full of meaning. It was our way of rebelling. 
By the way, this is the most important fact about the song. We wanted the words to lack any coherent meaning. There is no story or deeper insight that I can give you about this song. Camper Van Beethoven disbanded the following year due to internal tensions. Lead singer David Lowry formed Cracker. David joined Counting Crows, and several other members played in Monks of Doom. Beginning in 1999, the former members reunited and made several new records. Here for you now is Take the Skinheads Bowling by Camper Van Beethoven. just 17 years old when she was invited to try out for the vocals. She fit, and the group, which started as Still Life, formed around her. They performed together for the first time in 1981. Merchant was about 10 years younger than her bandmates. Like many college bands, 10,000 Maniacs grew out of a cult following. Starting in 1981, they never had a single even graze the bottom of any of the major charts until 1988 with Like the Weather, which got number 68 on the US Hot 100 and 37 on the US Mainstream, followed rapidly by What's the Matter Here, number 80 on the US Hot 100, but number 9 on the US Alternative, which qualifies as their breakout hit. Their chart performance has continued to be spotty since, but 
They're the kind of group which attracts sellout crowds of loyal fans without really having to worry about mainstream popularity. The group has accumulated a legion of former members thanks to its revolving door lineup history. But the most famous and founding member was Natalie Merchant. Merchant left in 1993 to start a solo career, but the group kept going without her, replaced by Mary Ramsey. Natalie was always truthful and forward with our business dealings together, bass player Stephen Gustafson said in a Song Facts interview. She's also been very generous. We all have a lot of respect for her talents and understood her desire to get away from us and the constraints that we put on her music. She had different visions, and I think we got in the way of those sometimes. We're very happy for her success as a solo artist, and she wishes us well. In her days with the band, Merchant referred to Madonna as her ideological enemy. Merchant went for deep social commentary and played down any hint of sexuality. Like many songs on the album, What's the Matter Here is a powerful piece of social commentary. In this instance, it's about child abuse also. Natalie Merchant sings from the perspective of a woman who lives near a family that's abusing their young son. She deplores the abuse, but isn't sure what to do about it. Afraid to take action, she wants to confront the family and ask, what's the matter here? But she doesn't dare. Here for you now is 10,000 Maniacs. What's the matter here?
Billy Bragg was born in 1957 in Barking, Essex, one of the sons of Dennis Frederick Austin Bragg, an assistant sales manager to a cap maker, and his wife, Marie Victoria de Urso, who was of Italian descent. Bragg's father died of lung cancer in 1976 and his mother in 2011. Bragg was educated at Northbury Junior High School and Park Modern Secondary School where he failed his 11-plus exam, effectively precluding him from going to university. However, he developed an interest in poetry at the age of 12, when his English teacher chose him to read a poem he had written from a homework assignment on a local radio station. He put his energies into learning and practicing the guitar, and with his next-door neighbor, Philip Wig, or Wiggy, some of their influences were The Faces, Small Faces, and The Rolling Stones. He was also exposed to folk and folk rock during his teenage years, citing Simon and Garfunkel and Bob Dylan as early influences on his songwriting. Bragg was particularly influenced by The Clash, whom he'd seen played live in London in 1977 on their White Riot tour, and again at the Rock Against Racism carnival in April of 1978, which he admits was the first time he really stepped into the world of music as it is used for political activism. The experience of the gig in preceding March helped shape Bragg's left-wing politics, having previously turned a blind eye to casual racism. The song New England was inspired by Bragg seeing two satellites flying alongside each other in the clear night sky on his way back home from the pub. He was searching for some romantic inspiration at the time, but had to make do with wishing on space hardware instead. He scribbled the words about a poet be spotted with a girl he does not know yet on some fish and chips paper. Billy Bragg has admitted that he stole the melody from the Irish rock band Thin Lizzy. When Christy McCall asked to cover the song, Billy Bragg wrote an extra verse because it was a bit short for a single. McCall was the daughter of the English folk musician Ian McCall. The song starts with the lyrics, I was 21 years when I wrote this song. I'm 22 now, but I won't be for long. The Simon and Garfunkel track, Leaves That Are Green, begins with exactly the same lines. Bragg told the NME in January of 2011 in an interview, When I wrote the song, I never thought one day Christy McCall would put it into the top 10. I was 21 when I wrote it, and I'm a huge Simon and Garfunkel fan, so it seemed like a nice line to put in. Here for you now is New England by Billy Bragg. I was 21 years when I wrote this song. I'm 22 now, but I won't be for long. People ask me, when will you grow up to be a man? But all the girls are up to school already pushing grams. I loved you then as I loved you still. Though I put you on a pedestal, they put you on the pill. I don't feel bad about letting you go. I just feel sad about letting you know. I don't want to change the world. I'm not looking for a New England. I'm just looking for another girl. I don't want to change the world. 
Kurt Cobain and bassist Krist Novoselic met while attending Aberdeen High School in Washington State. The pair became friends while frequenting the practice space of the Melvins. Cobain wanted to form a band with Novoselic, but Novoselic did not respond for a long period. Cobain gave him a demo tape of his project Fecal Matter. Three years after the two met, Novoselic notified Cobain that he had finally listened to the Fecal Matter demo and suggested that they start a group. Their first band, The Sellouts, was a Creedence Clearwater Revival tribute band. They recruited Bob McFadden on drums, but after a month, the project fell apart. In early 1987, Cobain and Novoselic recruited drummer Aaron Buckard. They practiced material from Cobain's Fecal Matter tape, but started writing new material soon after forming. Nirvana released its first single, a cover of Shocking Blue's Love Buzz, in November of 1988 on the Seattle independent record label Sub Pop. They did their first ever interview with John Robb and Sounds, which made the release its single of the week. The following month, the band began recording its debut album, Bleach, with local producer Jack and Dino. Bleach was influenced by a heavy dirge rock of the Melvins, and the 1980s punk rock of Mud Honey, as well as the 1970s heavy metal of Black Sabbath. The money for the recording sessions for Bleach listed as $606.17 on the album sleeve was supplied by Jason Everman, who was subsequently brought into the band as the second guitarist. Though Everman did not play on the album, he received a credit on Bleach because according to Novoselic, they wanted to make him feel more at home in the band. Just prior to the album's release, Nirvana became the first band to sign an extended contract with Sub Pop. Bleach was released in June of 1989 and became a favorite of college radio stations. After the album's release, Nirvana embarked on its own first national tour, but ended up canceling the last few dates returning to Washington State due to increasing differences with Everman. In April of 1990, Nirvana began working on their next album with producer Butch Vig at Smart Studios in Madison, Wisconsin. Cobain and Novoselic became disenchanted with Channing's drumming, and Channing expressed frustration at not being involved in the songwriting. As bootlegs of Nirvana demos with Vig began to circulate in the music industry, 
it started to draw attention from major labels, and Channing left the band. In September of 1990, Buzz Osborne of the Melvins introduced the band to the drummer Dave Grohl, whose Washington, D.C. band Scream had broken up. Grohl auditioned for Novoselic and Cobain days after arriving in Seattle. Novoselic later said, We knew in two minutes that he was the right drummer. Grohl told Q Magazine, I remember being in the same room with them and thinking, What? That's Nirvana? Are you kidding? Because on their record cover, they look like psycho lumberjacks. I was like, what, that little dude and that big motherfucker? Are you kidding me? Here's the third track from the album Bleach about a girl. Dukes of Stratosphere were an English rock band formed in 1984 by Andy Partridge, Colin Moulding, Dave Gregory, and Ian Gregory. Modeled after psychedelic pop groups from the 1960s, the Dukes were initially publicized by Virgin Records as a mysterious new act, but were actually an XTC spin-off band. They recorded only two albums, 25 O'Clock in 1985 
and Sonic Sunspot in 1987. In the UK, the records outsold XTC's then-current albums, The Big Express in 1984, and Skylarking in 1986. Partridge envisioned the Dukes as an amalgamation of your favorite bands from 1967. He and Dave Gregory conceived the project in 1979, but it was not until December of 1984 that the band found the opportunity to spend a few days recording what would become 25 O'Clock. Three rules were set for its production. Songs must follow the conventions of 1967 and 1968 psychedelia, no more than two takes were allowed, and using vintage equipment whenever possible. After reuniting for the LP Sonic Sunspot, XTC told interviewers that the group were killed in a horrible sherbet accident. Sherbet, or sherbet powder, is an effervescent drink or a fizzy powder sweet in chiefly the UK, Australia, New Zealand. Their aliases in the band were Sir John Johns, which was Andy Partridge on vocals, guitar, and bass, The Red Curtain, Colin Moulding on bass, vocals, and guitar, Lord Cornelius Plum, which was Dave Gregory, and E-I-E-I Owen, or Ian Gregory on the drums. Here is Vanishing Girl by the Dukes of Stratosphere.
The Call was an American rock band formed in Santa Cruz, California in 1980. The main lineup consisted of members Michael Binn, Scott Music, Tom Ferrier, and Jim Goodwin. The band released nine studio albums over the next two decades before disbanding in 2000. Their 1986 song, I Still Believe, was covered by Tim Capello and included in the 1987 film, The Lost Boys. The band also achieved significant success with Let the Day Begin in 1989, which reached number one on the Billboard U.S. mainstream rock chart and was later used as a campaign theme song for Al Gore's 2000 presidential campaign. The original lineup of The Call was Ben on lead vocals and guitar, music on drums and percussion, Ferrier on guitar, and Greg Freeman on bass. This lineup grew to include Steve Huddleston on keyboards from 1981 through 83. Goodwin joined the band as keyboardist in 1983, replacing Huddleston. Freeman departed in 1984 with Joe Reed taking over the bass duties for Scene Beyond Dreams. Beginning with their self-titled debut in 1982, they went on to produce and release nine studio albums by 2000. Their self-titled premiere album was recorded in England, and in an interview, Ben recalled that the band was in an exploratory phase at this point. He further noted, The Call was a compassionate album, but it probably came out as anger. Peter Gabriel liked the band so much that he called them the future of American music and asked them to open for him during his 1982 and 1983 Plays Live tour. The next album, Modern Romans, was notable for its political content. Michael, in an interview, was talking about the song The Walls Came Down. There was a great deal happening politically. Grenada, Lebanon, the government saying the Russians are evil, and the Russian government probably saying the same about us. That kind of thinking inspired me to write the last lines of The Walls Came Down. The song reminds the imagery of the Israelites led by Joshua during their siege of Jericho. On the seventh day of the siege, the priests blew their trumpets, made of ram horns, and the people shouted, and Jericho's wall fell, allowing Israel to destroy the city. Here for you now is the call, and the walls came down. Congregation splits 
Next up, an English rock group active from 1985 to 1992, originally called the Sherbet Monsters. The quartet first formed in the spring of 1985 in Wolverhampton in the Black Country. Paul Marsh, Dave Newton, and Tony Linehan had played together in a band called Active Restraint in 1982. With Newton later leaving to become the founding member of the Wildflowers, Dave Newton and Tony Linehan were the principal songwriters for the group. Their sound can be best described as more psychedelia-influenced post-punk, played with a ringing Rickenbacker guitar as the lead instrument. They drew comparisons to Echo and the Bunnymen, who were also influenced by psychedelia. After losing their original drummer, Martin Gilks, who later joined Wonder Stuff, the Drops lineup settled as Paul Marsh on vocals, Dave Newton on guitar, Tony Linen on bass, and Keith Rowley on drums. In December of 1985, the quartet, now officially the Mighty Lemon Drops, released their first independent single, Like an Angel. On Daniel Treacy of television personalities Dreamworld Records label, which went to the top of the UK indie chart and sold more than 14,000 copies. They also recorded a session for John Peel around the same time, becoming part of the C86 movement, which was championed by the New Musical Express. They were soon snapped up by Jeff Travis of Rough Trade Records and his new blue guitar label, a subsidiary of Chrysalis Records. They signed with Sire Records for the United States and Canada around the same period. In the UK, albums Happy Head and The World Without End both charted at number 58 and number 33 respectively. In the US, World Without an End was number one modern rock college album in 1988, and Happy Head was one of the top 50 best albums of the year in 1986, according to Sounds Magazine Critical Poll. Here for you now is Happy Head by the Mighty Lemon Drops.
An American band from Raleigh, North Carolina. They play a guitar-oriented, melodic, jangle-pop style of rock music with an introspective lyric that reflects the American South. The band, The Connells. Guitarist Mike Connell formed the band in 1984 with his brother David Connell on bass, Doug McMillan on lead vocals, and future filmmaker John Schultz on drums. This initial four-person lineup was quickly supplemented by the addition of George Huntley on second guitar, keyboards, and vocals. Around the same time, former Johnny Quest drummer Peel Wimberly replaced Schultz, finalizing the classic lineup of the band. An earlier version of Darker Days recorded in the band's initial four-piece lineup appeared on the North Carolina indie compilation Mormondo in 1984. A re-recorded version of Darker Days provided the title track to the band's debut album, which was produced by fellow North Carolinian Don Dixon. The album was released in 1985 on Elvis Costello's Demon Records in the UK and the band's own Black Park Records label in the US, with slightly different track listings for each country. In addition to the title track, one of the most notable songs in the album was Hats Off, an attack on the president, Ronald Reagan. After the release of Darker Day's album, the band re-recorded a more aggressive take on Hats Off for a 12-inch single, which was the second Connell's release on Black Park, and the last until 2000. During this period, videos for their song Seven and Hats Off were aired on MTV's 120 Minutes program. After touring heavily behind Darker Days, the Connells re-entered the studio in 1986 with producer Mitch Easter to record their second album, Boylan Heights. The decision to work with Easter continued to perpetuate the comparisons to R.E.M. Mike Connell's songwriting on Boylan Heights would provide most of the foundation for the band's live show sound for the remainder of their career. The opener, Scotty's Lament, featured the most explicit Celtic influence in the band's songbook, while the chorus lyric, I Delight in My Despair, Define the band's early image as doom and gloom merchants, an a la Morrissey and the Smiths. Also notable is that the lyrics for that song originally included the sardonic twist, I delight in your despair. Here for you now is the Connell Scotty's Lament. I saw angels I know 
British rock band formed in 1983 before settling on the current name in January of 1984. The band performed under the name Death Cult, which was an evolution of the name of the lead singer Ian Astbury's previous band, Southern Death Cult. They gained a dedicated following in the United Kingdom in the mid-80s as a post-punk gothic rock band, with singles such as She Sells Sanctuary before breaking into the mainstream in the United States in the late 80s, establishing themselves as a hard rock band with singles such as Love Removal Machine and Firewoman. Since their initial formation of Southern Death Cult in Bradford in 1981, the band had various lineups. The longest serving members are Astbury and guitarist Billy Duffy, who are the band's two songwriters. After moving to London, the band released their second album, Love, in 1985, which charted at number four in the UK and included singles such as She Sells Sanctuary and Rain. As we mentioned, Love is the second album by The Cult, released in 85 on Beggar's Banquet Records. The album was the band's commercial breakthrough. Reaching number four in the UK and staying on the chart for 22 weeks, it produced three top 40 singles in the UK, She Sells Sanctuary, Rain, and Revolution. It has been released in nearly 30 countries and sold an estimated 2.5 million copies. Love was recorded at Jacobs Studios in Farnham, Surrey, in July and August of 1985. Rain reached number 17 in the UK singles chart. It was the second single released from the album. The song was provisionally titled Sad Rain during its writing and recording stages, the lyrics being inspired by the vocalist frontman Ian Astbury's interest at that time in Northern Native American culture and a rain dance of the Arizonan Hopi people. Despite the song's popularity with the band's audience and it being one of its more commercially successful single releases, after performing in November of 1989 at Wembley Arena, Astbury asked the crowd, so you like that one? After they cheered in response, he responded with, Well, personally, I don't, but there you are. Well, I do like this one, Mr. Astbury. So let's hear it now. Rain by the Colt. Rain by the Colt. 
an English band formed in 1984 in Manchester, England, when former Specials and Funboy 3 frontman Terry Hall joined up with ex-Swinging Cats members Toby Lyons and Carl Shale. Despite the fact that all three members were from Coventry, the band was based in Manchester. When Virgins and Philistines, their album, was initially released in April of 1985, it contained 12 tracks in the U.S. release and 10 in the U.K. version, but can now be found with 20 tracks as a Japanese re-release containing many B-sides and live tracks. It failed to gain a large audience due to difficulty in marketing and an album with such a diverse sound. It mixes 1960s and early 1970s pop music with the more acoustic-based melodies and string arrangements. This particular album is often regarded as the direct musical predecessor to the later work of other northern bands, The Beautiful South and The Lightning Seeds, in the 1990s. Hall later collaborated with the latter in a songwriting role and also provided occasional vocals. Virgins and Philistines reached number 12 on the UK Albums Chart. The album contained all original material except a cover song, Can't Get Enough of You Baby, written by Linzer and Randall, and originally performed by the Four Seasons in 1966. But it was the only track that received much airplay on college radio stations in the U.S. Featured on the album was Pete DeFritis, the drummer from Echo and the Bunnymen. Here is Can't Get Enough of You Baby by The Color Field.
Formed in Brixton, London, England, active between 1982 and 1992, Marsh, along with drummer James Mitchell, founded Flesh for Lulu in 1982. The band scoring an early break when they caught the ear of legendary disc jockey John Peel and were invited into the BBC studios to record a quartet of songs, Dancer, Walk Tired, Missionary, and Spy in Your Mind, for Peel's show. Although additional musicians for the sessions included Philip Ames and former Tom Robinson band keyboardist Mark Ambler, Marsh and Mitchell soon filled out the Flesh for Lulu's lineup with bassist Glenn Bishop and guitarist Rocco Barker, formerly of the post-punk band Wasted Youth. By 1983, the band had secured a deal with Polydor Records, releasing their first single EP, Roman Candle, which was followed in 1984 by their self-titled debut album, but neither album nor its two singles, Subterraneans and Restless, proved commercially successful, resulting in the parting ways between Polydor and Flesh for Lulu. In addition, Bishop bailed out of the band, and Kevin Mills, late of the band's specimen, stepping in to fill his spot. But the year ended on a bit of an up note. Subterraneans managed to secure a slot of Peel's famed Festive 50 countdown. In 1985, it proved to be a transitional year for Flesh for Lulu, with the band's first releasing a mini-LP on Hybrid Records, and then issuing their sophomore album, Big Fun City, on Static Records later that year. But after signing to Beggar's Banquet in 1986, Flesh for Lulu's fortunes began to change, thanks to no small part of the work of John Hughes. When the Hughes-scripted film Some Kind of Wonderful hit theaters, its soundtrack featured the track which would come to be considered Flesh for Lulu's signature song, I Go Crazy. That was a big sort of game-changing chapter in the band's history, said Marsh, in a video interview for Flesh for Lulu's official YouTube channel in 2014. Because we were playing in these small clubs, and then all of a sudden we were playing to bigger audiences and younger audiences. The band also found success on college charts for the first time in their career, resulting in a deal with Capitol Records and a new album, Long Live the New Flesh, which featured the single Postcards from Paradise, a song later covered by both Paul Westerberg and the Goo Goo Dolls. Although Postcards from Paradise earned further college radio airplay for the band, it failed to cross over to the mainstream, and the album's other single, Siamese Twist, suffered a similar fate. Unfortunately, modern rock's success apparently wasn't enough for Capitol, who dropped the band after attempts to secure a new deal with Hollywood Records came to naught. Flesh for Lulu fell apart, with Marsh conceding, to coin the oldest cliché of them all, there were musical differences. Here's Flesh for Lulu's Postcards from Paradise. Paradise, say, won't you 
Lucy Show was a rock new wave band that was formed in London, England in early 1983. The band was formed by Mark Bandola on vocals, guitar, and keyboards, Rob Van Dieven, vocals and bass, and Paul Rigby on drums under the name Midnight Movie. Rigby quickly quit, and Pete Baraclo, guitars and keyboards, and Brian Hespra on drums were added to the lineup. And the band changed their name to The Lucy Show. Bandola and Van Dieven, two Canadian-born friends who had moved to England in the late 70s, shared songwriting and lead vocals equally, although the bulk of the early pre-album material had been written by Van Dieven. In 1983, they released their first single, Leonardo da Vinci, on an independent record label, Shout Records, which managed to receive some airplay by John Peel. Guitarist Barclow provided lead vocals on the B-side for the single, Kill the Beast. In 1984, A&M signed the band, releasing two singles, an EP during that year, on an offshoot label imprint called Piggy Bank Records, after providing a cassette recording of their material to R.E.M. The Lucy Show was invited to Athens to support the band on their 1984 UK tour. In 1985, the band's debut album, Undone, was released, with a guitar-heavy, lushly atmospheric, brooding sound reminiscent of The Cure, and Calm Sad Angels, it received generally favorable critical notices and even more importantly eventually went to number one spot on the CMJ album charts in the United States. The band's momentum had been steady up to that point and they naturally assumed continuing chart success would be in their future. However, they were shocked when they learned that the A&M UK decided to drop their band at the end of the year. In 1986, the band joined indie label Big Time Records, who released their second album, Mania. 
Produced by the now legendary John Leckie, the band's songs were much more upbeat and bouncy this time around. They added acoustic guitar and piano, harmonica, and synthesizer, and most noticeably brass, making the group sound very different from their previous incarnation, a jangly guitar and a new wave group. The change in direction initially promised to be effective as the album once again topped the CMJ charts and MTV began playing their music video for their first single of the album, A Million Things. Both this song and subsequent single, New Message, were substantial college radio hits. Bad luck would strike again this time when Big Time Records went bankrupt, leaving The Lucy Show adrift. Baraclo and Hudspeth were asked to leave, and Bandola and Van Even stuck together, releasing one final single, Wherever Your Heart Will Go in 1988 on Redhead Records. When that single went nowhere, both Bandola and Van Even realized it was time to quit, and they permanently disbanded The Lucy Show. Here is A Million Things by The Lucy Show.
Red Hot Chili Peppers were formed in Los Angeles by singer Anthony Kiedis, guitarist Hillel Slovak, and bassist Flea, and drummer Jack Irons, classmates at Fairfax High School. Their early names included Tony Flo and the Miraculously Majestic Masters of Mayhem. Their first performance was at the Rhythm Lounge Club to a crowd of approximately 30 opening for Gary and the Neighbors' Voices. Inspired by punk funk acts like the Contortions and Defunct, they improvised music while Kiedis rapped. At the time, Slovak and Irons were already committed to another group, What Is This? However, the band was asked to return the following week. The band changed its name to Red Hot Chili Peppers, playing several shows at LA venues. Six songs from these initial shows are on the band's first demo tape. In November of 1983, manager Linda Goetz struck a seven-album deal with EMI America and Enigma Records. Two weeks earlier, however, What Is This had also obtained a record deal with MCA. And in December, Slovak and Irons quit the Red Hot Chili Peppers to focus on What Is This. Flea and Kiedis recruited Weirdo's drummer Cliff Martinez and guitarist Jack Sherman. The band released their debut album, The Red Hot Chili Peppers, in August of 1984. Airplay on college radio and MTV helped build a fan base, and the album sold 300,000 copies. Gang of Four guitarist Annie Gill, who produced the album, pushed the band to play with a cleaner, more radio-friendly sound, and the band was disappointed with the result, finding it over-polished. The song Higher Ground, originally written by Stevie Wonder, the Red Hot Chili Peppers decided to cover this and rework the music to fit a smaller band than Stevie Wonder worked with. The keyboard part was replaced with Flea's powerful slap bass, and John Frusconti had a different guitar melody than played in the original. This song and Knock Me Down were the Red Hot Chili Peppers' first two hits and helped them achieve more mainstream success. The Chili's version of this song is a favorite among bass players because of its prominent slap bass line. Lead singer Anthony Kiedis choked that the reason that they covered this song was because it was between this song and covering the new kids on the blocks hanging tough. Here is Higher Ground by the Red Hot Chili Peppers.
show was focused on college rock of the 1980s, but now it's time for Crandall's Crucial Cut. This week's Crucial Cut will lead us into the next episode's topic. The next episode will look at songs from K-Rock's 106.7 Countdown from the year of 1981. The K-Rock Top 106.7 Countdown is an end-of-year countdown that lists the top 100.67 songs on the Los Angeles station KROQ as voted by listeners. The countdown started in 1980 and ran every year until 2009. Since 2009, the list has been compiled by fans from Playlist Data. In the late 1970s and early 80s, K-Rock's proximity to Hollywood and the Los Angeles music scene gave it a unique place in the development of punk and alternative rock genres. It is, in the heyday, K-Rock was considered the most powerful radio station in the world. It was the top-rated station in the Los Angeles metropolitan area, and its Rock of the 80s format was copied nationwide. Its renegade roots and willingness to experiment came along at the same time as the birth of punk and new wave. The choices made by the station and its staff had a worldwide impact. This is reflected in the annual list of the most popular songs. To close out this evening is number 106 from that list, The Adolescents. The Adolescents are an American punk rock band formed in Orange County in Fullerton, California in 1980. Part of the hardcore punk movement in Southern California in the early 1980s, they were one of the main punk acts to emerge from Orange County along with their peers in Agent Orange and Social Distortion. Founding bassist Steve Soto was the sole constant member of the band since its inception with singer Tony Reflex being in the group for all but one album. During the 1980s, the band went through several lineup changes, breakups, and reunions, most involving drummer Casey Royer and guitarist brothers Rick Frank and Alfie Agnew. During that decade, they released three albums, Adolescence in 1981, Bratz and Battalions in 1987, and Balboa Fun Zone in 1988. Then they broke up in April of 1989, Here's the 106th most popular song from K-Rock in 1981, Amoeba. And so until next time, so long and farewell.
Behind the Orange Curtain, a look at 80s music from Orange County, California. Music that came from here and music that came to here. 106.7 K Rock. Sports new. Music first. Tune in. LA and Orange County's only new rock.